Welcome to the SPU Voices podcast, where we tell personal stories with universal impact. I'm your host, Amanda Stubbard, and my producer, Kyle, isn't with us today because he and his wife, Erin, just delivered their beautiful baby girl, Georgia Lily. Congratulations, you guys. This episode, we sat down with Dr. Sandy Mayo. She is the Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion here at SPU. And today we talked to her about her personal journey to find herself. If you've ever gone on a journey like that, if you would like to go on that journey, then this for sure is the episode for you. Dr. Mayo joined Seattle Pacific in July of 2017 as Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. With a doctorate from Claremont Graduate University, Dr. Mayo was formerly an Associate Professor and Director of the Doctoral Program in Educational Leadership at Azusa Pacific University. Her scholarly work has explored historical perspectives on racial disparities. As a member of the leadership team, Dr. Mayo is part of SPU's ongoing efforts to reflect the kingdom of God in this community. Sandy, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We'll get into the work that you do here and the work that you've done other places, but can we just start from the beginning? I'm so fascinated by your upbringing and your childhood, and I just, I feel like someday someone's going to make a movie about you. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, let's see. Um, So I was born in New York uh, to parents who had Uh, immigrated from Jamaica. So I was first generation born in the United States. Uh, We lived on Upper Manhattan in Washington Heights community, uh, diverse community. Uh, I was the middle of three children. And um, I think most of childhood was part of my parents just trying to navigate life in America and figuring out how to sort of bridge their culture from home um, in our new home mm-hmm. and really experiencing life through their eyes and really trying to make sense of, of all of those cultural sort of elements. We moved to New Jersey uh, when I was five years old. And uh, it, it's interesting, you know, when, you, when your parents come from a different country, they don't necessarily have a sense of where they want to live in the United States. Mm. So we didn't have familiarity with different neighborhoods or cities Um, New York was a a natural destination. Many people coming from the Caribbean islands either uh, end up in New York or England, uh, the former mother country, um, or Canada. And so uh, when we were looking to move from New York, uh, my father is an electrician, and he had been working um, at a post office doing their electrical work. And it was the post office in Bloomfield, New Jersey. And he came home one day and told my mother, we should probably look at a home in in this place called Bloomfield. I'm I'm doing some work there and it looks nice. And so that sort of became, you know, the destination for us. We um, were able to find a home and purchase a home in Bloomfield, New Jersey. And so we started again um, our new lives in in this little town about 12 miles outside of New York City, uh, suburban residential community. Um, I'm guessing that not as quite as diverse as not nearly was in Manhattan. Not nearly mm-hmm. as diverse as Manhattan. And so I started my schooling uh, right away. In fact, I was two weeks late to kindergarten. <laughs> I remember being the new kid. But um, 
I was usually one or just uh, one of a few students of color uh, throughout my schooling in Bloomfield, New Jersey. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I, m I made much of that early on. Of course, as a kid, you're just sort of playing and making friends and going through life as normal. Um, but going through school um, in, in Bloomfield, it became challenging. Um, it, it became difficult to sort of experience the, the types of racial comments and questions about who I am. I remember growing up, that was a question I heard probably as frequently as what is your name is, what are you? Mm. And I really didn't know how to answer that and I didn't have a language for it. Um, I could Especially when no one around you is getting that question. That's right. Right. It's one yeah. thing if every kid is getting that question yeah. and you don't know how to answer, but if you're the only yeah. one who's getting asked that question, how do you, where do you learn the answer? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like, you know, as a child, you, you recognize differences, and I think that's just a normal human inclination. So I certainly knew that, okay, I don't look like my peers, but I didn't attach meaning to it. And uh, it wasn't until fifth grade, and I, I sometimes share this story, but uh, in fifth grade, I remember we were doing a reading on the Underground Railroad. Mm. And my fifth grade teacher asked me to stand in front of the class and explain to my classmates what the Underground Railroad was because those were my kind of people. And I just remember at the age of 10, uh, just feeling really embarrassed, mostly because I didn't know the answer. Um, you know, I was learning along with my peers. And so I was this gonna was say, supposed to be- How were you supposed to know more of the history yeah. than they did? Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, I think what struck me in that moment too was just the look on my teacher's face. And I think it was the first time that I realized this thing called race has meaning and it has weight. And I didn't, again, didn't have a language for it, didn't have a way of making sense of it, but um, it was certainly a turning point and a shaping experience for me. And uh, even to this day, I, I remember the feeling in my gut. Uh, it was the first of a series of sort of incidents like that throughout school where it was just made very clear, you are different, um, and that's not always a good thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, for me, going through school, there was just a sense of, um, I have to navigate this world a little differently. And um, I always tried to find that place where I could fit in. And I, I remember even in high school, um, you know, in the cafeteria when we would have lunch, my, my table in the cafeteria, uh, we would be jokingly referred to as the United Nations because it was sort of the table where every kid who didn't fit in somewhere else was seated. Yeah, um, people who maybe couldn't fully identify, um, you know, how they how they were going to to identify themselves racially or ethnically, mm -hmm. um, and we were all just trying to figure it out in in a very I would say racialized terrain, and I don't think that people, uh, particularly people from majority culture, often realize that we are always navigating racialized terrain, but it's made very evident to those of us for whom, uh, you know, race has been a, a mark for right. us, where it's clearly been identified and it's really clearly identified as something that's not positive. Right, right, and I, um, we've had this conversation before, and I think many, many first-generation American children have the same thing where you don't fit at school because you look differently mm -hmm. and are treated differently and ask different questions and ex mm -hmm. expected to know things differently. 
And yet at home, there is still a disconnect because some kids didn't feel, you know, even if they look the same as everyone else around them, they don't really fit in at school. So that feeling is familiar, but they could go home and fit in at home. But a lot of other first generation students have, have talked to me about how you don't really feel like you fit in at home either because your parents are of a different culture that they're almost shielding you from. So you're not allowed to be Jamaican, but you're really not quite American. And so you don't fit anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And that was certainly the case in my experience. Uh, My my parents had difficult circumstances in Jamaica. And so leaving Jamaica was sort of this hope and aspiration for something better um, opportunity in the United States in terms of work, but also a distancing from what was a painful history for them. And so as children, we were definitely told, you know, sort of you're American, you're you're not Jamaican. But for me, there was always that curiosity. And I think because I was always asked, what are you? There's a natural question that forms for me um, to determine who I am and what -hmm. what my uh, legacy is, what my ancestry is, what that history, that past is that my parents came from. And so um, it was difficult. And I know that my parents, they didn't have a language either for what I was experiencing in school. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, race was something that really wasn't talked about a whole lot in my household. Uh, when you are coming from a country like Jamaica that is majority black, no one's really thinking about racial differences, right? And so it takes on a unique meaning within the United States. And I think for families that um, are coming to the United States. It's a, it's a new experience, and it's something that we end up navigating together. So my parents were learning along with me when I was a child. Um, but for me, that understanding our Jamaican history was was really important, and it it's something that, as a young adult, I really uh, invested a great deal of time in and uh, really went on a personal journey to understand uh, my Jamaican roots. It was probably my early 20s when I went back to Jamaica for the first time and uh, started to make a series of trips back to Jamaica. And that was really important for me because uh, we really didn't have uh, an understanding of who our family was. Neither of my parents grew up with their parents. My father was orphaned by the age of five, and uh, technically he would be considered a social orphan. So his mother had passed away. His father was still living, but was not in his life. And uh, my mother was what was referred to as a barrel child. So there were a lot of parents in Jamaica who had to seek work in England, which is where there were opportunities. So her mother left uh, Jamaica very early in her life. Um, She didn't know her. Uh, And my mom grew up with her aunts and uncles and grandparents, different homes with extended family members. And... uh, The idea with barrel children is that parents would go abroad, seek work, and then they would send goods and supplies and money in those big sort of huge barrels. And so it's this concept that was pretty popular in Jamaica um, during the 40s and 50s and before emancipation in 1962. So this uh, idea of family separation is a huge part of my background and experience. And um, I didn't meet my grandmother uh, until my, on my mother's side until I was 16. Um, and it was a long process of healing and really trying to reach out on my own and then try to convince my mom that maybe it's time to 
you know, make those connections again, but I, I can only imagine now as an adult how painful that must have been for her. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, think, I think my story just sort of lands at the intersection of, of this really complex history of what um, colonialism in Jamaica really meant for people and their lives and their experience and what it means for the generations that follow that then don't have a real sense of their family history, their culture, um, and their connection to any particular land. Um, And so I I actually went back to the orphanage where my father was raised. And uh, that was something I had always wanted to do, but I knew that it was very painful for him. So um, I, I sort of did some research on my own. I reached out to the oldest living nun at the orphanage. And I asked her for a picture. I wanted to see a photograph of my father as a young boy. Uh, That was something that I was just curious about. Well, it's something I think a lot of us take for granted, that you have access to to that kind of family history. Yeah, and I think there's something really important about having that sort of tangible uh, piece of your history. And so that, that was my first question to her is, do you have a picture? I'm the daughter of Victor Richards, um, niece of John Richards, because both um, boys were sent to the orphanage. And she wrote back. And she didn't have a picture, but she did have an essay that my father wrote. Uh, I think he was about 15 when he wrote this essay. And I remember opening the envelope and seeing this written document from the father who, you know, uh, that, that child that I, I wouldn't have known sort of what he was thinking or experiencing at that time. And it just was, it was a moment of um, clarity for me, but also the beginning of healing um, and really getting a sense of what my father experienced and, and how he was shaped by those experiences. There was so much of his past that he did share with us, but there was a lot that he didn't. Uh, there were a lot of memories locked away in the pain. And so um, I, I just really, that started a journey for me of really trying to better understand my history and also just understand the influences of Jamaican culture in my life, um, which was empowering because you sort of go through life knowing that there are particular musical influences, there, there are ways of being, there's a way of navigating the world that um, you, you carry yourself in a certain way um, you have certain sayings and expressions, and you, if you don't know where they come from, you just sort of feel like um, there's this, there's just a gap. There's just a gap. And for me, it was just a wonderful journey of about 10 years following that first communication with, with the nun. Um, Open just doors of understanding, doors of healing with my father. Our relationship uh, was able to deepen a bit uh, after that. He actually visited the orphanage with me some years later. And uh, that too gave me additional understanding of who he was and, and sort of the ways that he raised me and why for him education was so important um, and why he emphasized that so much to us. I saw the, the limits of, of what was available to him, you know, in going back there. And so um, I know all of this sort of connects back to the work that I do today. I think I'm fascinated not only with my own story and history, but also 
um, other people's stories, the way that they've navigated to where they are today, um, how race and identity has played into their understanding of the world. Um, certainly, um, brokenness is a huge component of that. And I think that I have a particular empathy um, recognizing how You know, the, the, these, these sorts of cultural journeys for each of us, there, there's pain, there's loss, there's joy, there's hope in, in all of that. Um, mm -hmm. And so how we're knitted together through that um, is something that I really am fascinated by and, and just uh, really try to bring into my work each day. I, I'm fascinated by how embracing the question of who are you, what are you, that in the end, that that journey of trying to answer that question has been empowering and enriching and a good experience for you. It's a shame that it had to come to you from such a, a, a broken way, right? To come out of a way of, of singling you out and making you feel less than an other as a child. And I love that the work you do now is not only helping, whatever the color of their skin, is helping college students answer those questions. Who am I? Where, what mm -hmm. space is here for me? Um, and and college is the time, is it not? The yeah. time to, to really dig into those questions. Who am I? Absolutely. Because I won't be living with my family probably forever. <laughs> um, but what am I going to bring with me? What about yeah. my legacy am I going to bring with me as I start my own family and, yeah. and things like that? And I, I'm just so grateful that you're here to help our students with that because I think it can be seen, all racial work can be seen very black and white right. um, of we're just talking about color of skin and we're just talking about opportunity and policy and it's so much bigger than that. And I just love the way you approach this work of really just finding space and, and helping to ask those questions in a way that are that, that makes them empowering versus taking your power away. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a piece of the story that I you know I probably should uh, mention here that I think becomes pretty significant when I think about the work that I have opportunity to do today, um, and my college experience was critical to that. I was 19, uh, sophomore in college, and in an English literature class. It was actually a Black literature class where we were reading um, Harlem Renaissance writers. And it was in that moment that I, I actually realized it was the first time I was reading text by black authors. And I don't think that was my first realization. I think the first realization was just sort of, there's something different in these texts for me where I am actually feeling alive. I was hearing a voice and a language and a cadence. And it's something I can't even really fully describe, but there was, there genuinely is a different cadence to the writing that was familiar to me and connected in a way that um, there's, there's a sort of like an ancestral memory that it just sort of tapped into. And I remember thinking, wow, I wish I had had this sooner. I wish that someone in my educational journey um, had cared enough to say, hey, you know, you might wanna take a look at some of these writers. I think you might enjoy the stories that they're sharing. I think you might, I think these might resonate with you. And so there was a moment where I, I was pretty angry 
I was pretty resentful towards the education that I had received. I felt as though I had been schooled well, but I hadn't been educated. Mm. And I remember at, at the age of 19 and in all my sort of rebellion and, and desire to, to really change things in the world, um, I said, I'm not going to read for the next year. I'm not going to read any books by white authors. That's it. <laughs> just gonna, just, that's it. I'm going to focus. I'm going to focus on reading about um, black history and really understanding what I've missed to this point. It was the first time I fell in love with reading. It was the first time I fell in love with, with learning. And there's absolutely no way I would have pursued um, my, my graduate degrees absent that experience. And so I think for me, I carry that experience and I, I know how critical it is for our students to be able to engage texts where they see themselves and where they see themselves not as a footnote to history, but as shapers of history and culture and art, as thinkers who are contributing to disciplines. Um, I mean, when you're reading the Harlem Renaissance writers, you get a very clear idea that black history is centered in literature and art and culture. That had not been my experience. Prior to that, black people were what followed the verb. We, we were objects of history. Things were, were done to us. You were not the us. protagonist. We were you not were, the yeah. protagonist. And that, that changes everything. It changes everything. You can no longer look at yourself in the world the same when you see yourself as the protagonist, when you see yourself as contributing in a meaningful way to um, yeah, to thought, to creativity. So when I think about my role today, um, yeah, I'm, I'm always sort of the one saying we need to curricularize these efforts. It, it can't just be diversity for diversity's sake. When we're saying diversity, let's just focus on increasing numbers and representation in the room. All of that's wonderful, but what matters is I think modeling for young people and giving them a language um, to really be able to make sense of their experience because they're navigating life and they're navigating this terrain um, in ways that they are um, being called to question and respond to who they are, um, why they're different, um, you know, and, and sometimes even you know, having to answer difficult questions about why their families or, or they themselves have not been able to achieve certain things in life. And I think we have very limited understanding of um, patterns of migration and, you know, histories of um, generational poverty that have, that have been created through social policy and the ways in which that has impacted certain demographic groups. And, and young people are having to respond to that, and they need a language, and they need to have a curriculum that um, provides not only a defense, but also gives them solid ground and footing to have a stake in, in this thing called life and to have a place in the world, to demonstrate their agency, to, to really establish that agency and find their voice. So curriculum to me is powerful. And I think knowing that curriculum, uh, either willfully or not, it has been used as a tool, um, and it has been skewed, and it has left out a big part of the story 
And I think for me at a Christian institution, one of the beautiful things is sort of our commitment to the pursuit of truth. And for me, uh, what better way to do that to, than to tell the whole story? And so we are really, uh, we're really failing our students if we're not telling the full story. And I feel like much of education has not allowed for that. And so um, that, that to me is a crucial part of the work. And it's, it goes back to that 19-year-old Sandy in that English lit classroom really coming alive. And I think that's a lot of what we can, we think about liberal arts being across disciplines, but it's also across perspectives, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we're going to go out in the world and, and interact with all different perspectives. And right. here is the place, now is the time for right. us to be exposed to different perspectives and realize you can have a different perspective right. from me. And that doesn't hurt me. If anything, it should help me grow right to to have a little bit of your perspective right. as as i grow and and um i i agree with you 100% the the broader we can f throw open our educational doors the better yeah. off all of our students will be well sandy i appreciate you being with us so much and sharing your story um i could listen for the rest of the day <laughs> to your story but i want to end with the same question i ask everybody at the okay. end which is you clearly have a different perspective, just like we all do. We're all completely unique, and we have a different way of looking at the world. So if you had everyone in the Seattle area do something differently tomorrow that would make the world a better place, what would you have them do? I would say what we're doing right here. I think the sharing and listening to stories is really important um, if we're trying to um, change the way we engage across differences. I think there's so much fear a lot of times, and I really, uh, in my own work, I, I hope to humanize the work of diversity, to say let's, let's sort of break down those walls of fear and um, let's engage. Uh, so I think the stories become important. I think there's possibility for empathy and bridge building when we hear each other's stories, when we realize that um, there are some common themes throughout our lives, even though they may play out very differently. But I think everyone has experienced um, separation and brokenness, and uh, you know, hopefully many have encountered the redemptive hope of the cross. And, and so I think that there are commonalities that we also find. But if we can share our stories and really approach uh, the listening to those stories with a deep listening that has the intent of healing, I think we begin to really uh, change the way we, we engage in this world. Listen with humility, tell your story. Thank you, Sandy. 